0: All right, um, so uh, you, I'm sure, are all aware, If unless you haven't been on the Internet or listened to the radio or watched TV in the last week, uh, all of you know uh, that on Sunday, sometime in the morning, early afternoon, uh, that the, the NBA player, former NBA player Kobe Bryant, uh, died in a helicopter crash along with, I think it was nine total people, one of them being his 13-year-old daughter. Uh, and I remember when I heard that news on Sunday, I saw it flash up on my phone, and that just, like, blew my mind. Uh, it was just kind of this very surreal moment. I was, truth be known, I was never a huge Kobe fan when he was in the NBA. Always cheered against him. Always cheered against the Lakers. Still do today. Uh, but I was, I was never a huge fan of him at the time, and, and yet there's still just something just kind of weirdly sad, this person who's kind of in the public eye. So when you've seen so much and just uh, in, in, you know, like 13 words on your phone, just realize that that person's life has ended along with a number of other people. And it's just kind of like that and unexpected. Um, and I remember I, I went and uh, found my son uh, Hudson, he's nine and he loves basketball, loves NBA. And so, uh, I told him and he's not, he's not a, again, a huge Kobe fan or anything himself, but just that idea was like, whoa, it's crazy. Um, so I remember I'm standing in the kitchen. I tell him, uh, but then my daughter, Ella, uh, she's 10 years old. She, two things to know about Ella. Actually, I'm going to turn this off because out of the corner of my eye, I see stuff moving and it's distracting me. I know. Um, so, uh, I, I, uh, Ella hears this, and and two things about Ella, one is she's got ears like a bat, okay, and so she, like, hears anything in the house that's going on, and second is she's got kind of, I don't know if any of you like this, she's got this kind of, like, fascination with dark and sad things, right, Uh, she's going to be my little goth girl, right, she's going to grow up and write, write poems about death and all of those kinds of things, but so as soon as she hears this, she, like, comes rushing into the kitchen, she's like, who died? When did they die? How did they die? Um, what time, she asked. What time did they die? Uh, like she, She's just, and I'm like, I'm looking at her like, what is wrong with you, you know? Uh, but she, she, she wants to know this stuff, and so I'm telling her, and I don't even know, I'm sure she's heard the name Kobe Bryant, I, I imagine, but I don't know if she's even heard it, but she's fascinated, and she wants to know everything about it. But the other thing about Ella is it's not just like a, a morbid, thing in her that wants to know about those. There is, she's got a tender heart and a compassionate heart towards uh, towards tragedy and towards people going through difficult things and so the wheels in ella's head will spin on that stuff all day long she'll be thinking about it this person just died and she'll be thinking about his daughter and about his family and, and all of those things and so it was hours later it was actually later that night we were getting ready to go to bed and she's brushing her teeth and she stops and she just asks me this question uh she says uh dad uh How is it, if God is in charge, how is it that bad things happen? And, uh, which I don't know if you know this, that's like one of the most complicated, biggest... Theological, philosophical questions there are, like people who study apologetics all their life, they'll go, man, that's one of the harder ones to answer, and my 10-year-old is already asking me that, um, and I'm just trying she's going to keep me on my toes, uh, and so, so I sat there and tried to talk to her a little bit about that. Side note, by the way, um, I don't know how many of you guys... Think about those kinds of questions and wonder about those kinds of things. Uh, we, we tried to start a couple years ago putting together a little resource for you guys. Um, if you go and you find our teaching on iTunes or on SoundCloud, the Table OSU is, is what it is. Um, we have uh, our, all our teaching from Thursday nights, but we also have a, a number of these little episodes on here. The title will always start with AN15 for Apologetics in 15. And in 15 minutes or less, try and deal with a question like, how could a good God allow suffering? Um, science disproved Christianity is the Bible full of contradictions how do I speak to a professor who's attacking my faith um, so just want to throw that out there as something that may be an encouragement to you to check those things out but, but Ella's asking me those kinds of questions at 10 already and she wasn't done uh, that night later as I'm tucking her in bed and, and I'll try to kind of just sit there and talk with them and we, we sing and pray together but she stopped and she asked me this question and she said, I know this is a crazy question to ask, Dad. But she said, um, is it ever okay to think that God is bad? Is it ever okay to think that he did something bad? Like if people, when people die or like when friends move away. So now it's getting personal because she's talking about actual experiences in her life. When, when close friends move away. Um, and I'm sitting here as a dad and I'm trying to think through how to answer this exactly. Um, because on the one hand, uh, I want to speak the truth to her. Um, and, and I want her to know that dude, there is nothing. Um, I, my answer was, one of, one of the things I said to her is it's kind of like thinking blue is orange. I'm not saying you're a terrible person if you think that the color blue is orange. It just factually cannot be the case. And with God himself, he cannot do things that are wrong or bad. Um, and this is what is true. And so I want to answer her truthfully, but at the same time, I'm I, trying to be careful because she's not trying to be disrespectful or rebellious. She's having an honest question. I don't know if you've ever had a question like that. Is God bad or has He done something? Wrong? Has he done something that he ought not to have done? Um, last week we wrapped up Romans eight, which is one of the most kind of exhilarating, um, like mountain peak, mountaintop texts in all the Bible. This incredible text that is all about the amazing commitment God has to us as His people, and therefore the incredible assurance we can have that there is nothing in the world that can separate you from the love of Jesus. Uh, Paul ends it with this this idea, For I am persuaded um, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor death, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it's this, you can, you can almost just see him just furiously writing these words out with excitement and anticipation to be able to get that to the people, this amazing section of scripture. And and he ends, and the truth is, man, that would have been the place right there to just end this letter. You could have ended with that. It would have, like that's the point, Paul, where you drop the quill and just walk out of the room, right? Because you can't like you can't top that. That's amazing. Where do you go from Romans 8 from that moment? Well, here is where he goes directly out of those lines that I just said to you. The very next words out of Paul's mouth are these. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. So you open it up, and where does Paul go to? From the highest of highs, he immediately, like within within like three words, he's going down to the lowest of lows. He's, he's at this point where he's just almost spontaneously worshipping as he writes to the point where he's like crying in sorrow and anguish as he writes. And why is it that he's so torn up, he says, about his people, the Jews? Why is he so torn up about Israel? Here's what he says. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So Paul says all these things about the Israelites. Theirs is the adoption. Theirs is the patriarchs. Theirs is the the covenant and the glory and all the things. But if you paid attention to the the last eight chapters, that is the first eight chapters of it, you'll see that Paul has been saying that the Gentiles are getting a lot of those. Gentiles just being non-Jewish people are getting a lot of those things that are supposed to go to the Jews. The adoption as God's children. The glory. The new covenant. He's been saying that all those belong to the Gentiles and the truth is, the tragedy is that um, very few of the Jews were experiencing that. That all those blessings that had been Israel's had moved on past them, and many of them were left behind. Most of them, the reason why, is because most of them had rejected all the truths that Paul has been teaching for the last eight chapters, all the things that he had been preaching. Uh, Paul's gospel, the gospel of Jesus, did not make sense to them. That this long-awaited Messiah that they had been looking for for years who was supposed to come save them and bring victory to him, that he was a crucified man who got killed by our Gentile overlords. That just didn't make sense, that, that people could be a part of God's covenant family without actually following the law that He had given us 1,400 years ago and that we've been following as well as we can this time. And now, Paul, you're saying that people don't even need that to be doing all that in order to be part of God's people? Or that the boundary markers, who's in and who's out, all of a sudden seem to have changed on them. It used to be who was Jewish, who was circumcised, who was following all the dietary restrictions. And so now, Paul, you're saying that that's not the case anymore. It all seems to have shifted and that didn't make sense to them. And this leads to this really big question Is God being fair to them? Is He being fair to the Jewish people? Is He being fair to His old covenant, to the covenants or the people of the Old Testament? Is he being righteous? We, we've talked a little bit. Um, well actually, yeah, we've talked a little bit about this idea that one of the ways you could view Romans is that it is a major defense of and lifting up of the righteousness of God. And in the first section, we talked about that God is righteous in judging a sinful world. He is true to his character. He does what is just and right. He is also true to his character and does what is just and right by saving people through Jesus. We find out in the next section, and then in five through eight, which we just wrapped up, his righteousness is displayed in giving a new kind of life to those who follow him. Now we come to this next session, nine through eleven, and it's this: God's righteousness and Israel's unbelief. How do those two things blend together? Because these other questions are popping up. Does this mean, if everything's kind of pulling away from the nation of Israel, does this mean that God has changed the rules on these people after 2,000 years? Does it mean that He's done with His people? And wouldn't that be a failure on God's part if His own people didn't get to see the covenant promises? And how do we know, by the way, that the Jewish people are wrong? I mean, like if they have been waiting for the Messiah and they don't think Jesus is the Messiah, then how do you know that you're right when you think he's the Messiah? Can we really trust the assurance that Romans 8 promises? Yes, God is for you. He'll be with you. But wasn't he for the Jews? Wasn't he with the nation of Israel? It doesn't seem like it's that way now. All these questions pop up and and this is what Paul Sees as he comes out of Romans eight that he needs to deal with. How do we how do we address this issue of the nation of Israel? So we're we're going to do something a little different tonight. We are covering all of Romans nine, all of Romans ten, all of Romans eleven tonight, um, and. Uh, we're doing this, I'll, I'll explain why in just a second, but, but generally, if, if you've never been here before, the way this usually works is we spend the first half of the evening walking through the text verse by verse, making sure we've got a grasp on what it says, what it means, Okay, and then we'll take a little break, and then we'll get up for a second half, and we'll take a truth out of that, and we'll teach on that, and how we apply that into our lives, how we live that out. All right. What we're going to be doing over the next couple of weeks is, tonight is all going to be first half. We're just going to be making sure we understand this text. And then next week we'll come together and we'll start talking about, okay, how do we apply this? How do we live this? What what truths are there in here that need to change us? Um, we're doing that because this is a really difficult section and a highly debated section of Scripture. Um, I, I've mentioned the last couple of weeks in my belief that we as human beings have been given free will by God to be able to choose whether or not we are going to follow Him, whether or not we are going to place our trust in Jesus, place our faith in Him. That there are a number of other people, people that I respect and love, who believe that's not the case. Um, That They believe that um, God chose ahead of time who was going to be saved and who was not going to be saved. That He predestined who would go to heaven, who would go to hell. And those people would say, Romans 9 is one of the major reasons that I'm wrong. And, and maybe a little bit of Romans 11, that this whole section, Romans 9 and 11, are two of the biggest reasons that show, Drew, why you're wrong. People don't have free will. And, and so this is a really big one uh, to, to get into and to try and tackle. Uh, I'll confess to you, if I gave you for most of my life my top 10 um, chapters I don't quite understand, 9 and 11 would both be in there. Uh, they would both make the top 10. They're kind of tough. And so we want to make sure we get this, and there's this New Testament scholar named Ben Witherington, um, he says that reading Romans 9 through 11 is like riding a bicycle. And that is, if you go too slow, you're going to fall off. Uh, that you can't, you can't stop too much and look because you got to keep moving forward to keep your balance and get on it. And so that's why we're doing this. That's why tonight we're going through all of it at once. We're going to just try to keep pedaling um, our way through this. Um, I'm not going to read every verse to you tonight. Um, we're going to read a decent amount of them and try to explain, and, and after each little section I gave you that sheet, I've got a summary of each section. After each section, we're going to summarize it, and in some of them, I, I won't even read the verses. I'll just We'll just kind of read the summary together, um, but we are going to jump in now. So, um, we already talked about this. Here's the first summary of those five verses that we read. Um, Paul says in his words, I am deep, or my version of his words, he says, I am deeply sorrowful that Israel, in spite of all its blessings, stands cut off from Christ and therefore God. They are cut off from Christ and therefore God. Then he says this in verse 6, chapter 9, verse 6. But, and this is key if you want to get the rest of this section, this verse right here is key. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Alright? That verse right there is huge. Israel had been God's chosen people ever since God came and made a covenant with Abraham about 2,000 years before this, before Romans was written. He made a covenant with this man named Abraham and said, "Um, you and your descendants, Abraham, are going to be my people and I will be your God and you will belong to me and I will care for you and you can follow me. And so, Israel had been the people of God and this was a really big deal for them. Uh, uh, but there, what Paul actually says here, I'm going to erase a little bit, just so you can see this. What Paul says in this verse is um, there are actually two Israels. There is physical Israel, or you might say uh, ethnic Israel, those who are of the ethnicity of the Israelites, those who are of Abraham's slave. But then there's actually this second one here, And that is spiritual Israel. That is the new, the true people of God. Actually, I don't even know if new is the right word for it, actually. Just the true people of God. And Paul says that not everybody who belongs in this category actually belongs in this one, the real one. They're actually two Israels. Not everybody who is of Israel is Israel, he says. Um, and then he goes on in verse seven and says this: And not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. Um, uh, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the offspring. For this is what the promise said: About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. So, the Jewish people put a lot of weight on this fact. How do we know that we're God's? I'll tell you how. Abraham is our forefather. And God showed up and he made a covenant with Abraham, and so we belong to him. And so, like, when Jesus confronts the Jewish people and says that you've got God wrong, that you're missing it, here's one of their big responses to him. No, we don't. We're Abraham's descendants. Abraham is our father. That's how we know we're good. That's how we know we're in. Um, but what Paul is getting at is he's going, no, 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 listen, don't just think because you have Abraham as your forefather that that means you're part of God's people. And and what he's actually getting at here is this idea. We talked about this last year in uh, when we studied through Genesis, that Abraham did not just have one son. There are uh, two major sons, uh, Ishmael and Isaac, okay, actually, I was just reading with uh, Danker today, Abraham actually had uh, another wife after, like, Sarah died, named Keturah, and she had, like, six others, so he actually had, he actually had eight sons, all right, but, and here's what Paul is saying, uh, God did not use Ishmael to make his covenant people. God did not use these other six to make his covenant people. It was only through the one that he made the promise. Through Sarah, you're going to have a son named Isaac. And, and Isaac I just about fell off the stage. That would have been bad. Um, and Isaac is the one that the promise is going through. Okay? And so here's Paul's point. Um, there are actually a lot of people who are descendants of Abraham all the way back in the beginning. But it was not physical descent from Abraham that made you part of God's people. It was his promise that made you part of God's people. And so here's what Paul's getting at. He's going all the way back to the beginning and he's saying, God has not changed the plan. This is the way it's happened from the very beginning. You were never part of God's people just because you had Abraham's genes inside of you. It's not the way that stuff worked. Okay? And so he's making that point there from the beginning. But even being a part of Isaac's line actually did not make you a part of Israel. Look at what he says on the the very next section there in uh, 10 through 13. And not only so, but also when Rebecca, that's Isaac's wife, when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. So Jacob and Esau both come from the same uh, man from the same mother. Okay, They're actually twins. And what Paul says is, um, before they're even born, God said, uh, this is the direction that I'm going. Not the older one, which was expected in common. Not this one. And, and here's what Paul says. They weren't even born yet, which means it had nothing to do with Jacob being a better person than Esau. Jacob wasn't even alive yet to do good things. Esau wasn't even alive yet to do bad things. It had nothing to do with, A, being a part of Abraham's line. Nope, that's not what makes you God's people. It had nothing to do with being a really good person. That's not what makes you God's people. From the beginning, the true spiritual Israel had more to do with the promise and with grace than it did with your physical descent or with your good deeds, your good works, however you may follow really well, whatever that may be. Um, so this becomes the, the, the message that Paul is getting at, that from the beginning, uh, God has been operating in this way. Um, this is where we'll, we might get to it later. We'll see. Um, let me read a summary of those verses that we just read. Uh, summary of chapter 9, verses 6-13. through 13. You have it there in front of you. Um, Paul says in the first few verses, I wish Israel could be a part of it. I want them to be a part of God's plan, the physical Israel that is. But then he says this, but God's plan did not fail for there are actually two Israels and inclusion in the true Israel has never been strictly a matter of physical descent. Isaac and Ishmael prove that. Nor is it a matter of good works. Jacob and Esau prove that. Um, So this is where he's starting and this is where he goes for into the next section what he'll begin to talk about is that God's decision to do it this way was not unjust or wrong. Paul says actually that God has a right to show mercy to people for his plan or to harden people for his plan in order to bring about his purposes. And he brings up this example of Pharaoh that he says God raised up Pharaoh for this specific purpose that was to see his glory go out and to see his plan go forward. If you read through the story of Exodus when God wants to set his people free from Egypt. He goes to Pharaoh and what you see is that Pharaoh hardens his heart. And at the same time, God comes in and hardens Pharaoh's heart. And he uses Pharaoh's hard heartedness To show off his glory and to bring his plan to fruition. Because Pharaoh's heart was hard, God sent all ten plagues and his power was displayed. And the Israelite people were able to see this mighty God who is making them um, his people and that were belonging to him. And so he's saying this is what God does. He can show mercy however he wants to show mercy and use whoever he wants to use. And he can also harden people like Pharaoh in order to show mercy to his people Israel if he wants. Um, at the same time actually he says this is what he's now doing with Israel. Now he's actually using their rejection and their hard heartedness and their rebellion he's using them as an instrument to bring mercy to spiritual Israel which includes Gentiles in that covenant and it includes a remnant of but not all the Jews. Um, if you read down through the rest of Uh, chapter 9, what you'll see is Paul uses these prophecies from the book of Hosea and from the book of Isaiah, uh, Hosea and Isaiah to prove this. And the reason he's doing this is Paul wants to show you that this is, he's going to take the Jewish scriptures and he's going to say all the way through the Jewish scriptures this has been true. God's not changing anything up. He's not throwing you a curveball. He has always operated according to the promise and according to grace. He has always been able to show mercy to people to accomplish his purposes and to harden some people to accomplish his purposes and that happened from Abraham all the way through to the prophets. This is what he's getting at with this. Um, Now, here's the question. Why are so many from physical Israel, why are so many people from the nation that Jesus was born out of, the nation of Abraham, why are so many of them failing to be a part of the true Israel, the spiritual Israel. Why are they not getting it? Here's what he says in chapter 9, verse 30. What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion, a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. Um, here's, Here's Paul's answer for why physical Israel is not being a part of spiritual Israel. The reason is because while many of the Gentiles have submitted to God's righteousness and they have attained it by faith, the Jewish people have been pursuing a righteousness by their own adherence to the law, which does not work, which is not the way that God designed it. And, And then he does this really interesting thing in verse 33. He combines two prophecies from Isaiah. There's this one prophecy in Isaiah 8:14, which calls God, says that God is a stumbling block and a snare to those who disobey Him, that they trip over God, that they fall into a trap. But then in Isaiah 28, God is called a cornerstone, and what He does is a foundation, a place of security. And so what Paul does is he combines those two images and he applies it to Jesus, and he says, so what is Jesus? Is He a stumbling block that causes you to fall into a trap? Or is he a foundation that you can place all your trust and security on? And the answer is yes. It just depends on what you do with him. And those who reject him will find themselves falling over and falling into sin and finding their hearts rebelled. And those who will place their faith in him will find security and rest and assurance for their souls. And Jesus becomes both of those things. He will either be your salvation or your downfall, but Jesus is nothing in between those two things. He'll explain here in chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that's physical Israel, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So here's what Paul says. He says, listen, the, the Jewish people, physical Israel, they have a zeal for God. They, 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 they are passionate about Him. And Paul can attest to this. He had more passion about God and the law than anybody else um, when he was a Pharisee, before he began to follow Jesus. But he says they're ignorant of the main purpose and the main point of God and what He's all about. Says says in verse 4, Christ is the end of the law. The end. The Greek word there is telos. And it doesn't just mean like the finish, like it's done. It means like the end goal of the law. It means like the end purpose or the end point, the fulfillment of it. So, God, Paul says, He didn't give the law in 1456 BC and give that to Moses, and then after 1400 years go, man, gosh, that's not working anymore. I got to come up with a plan B and then sent Jesus. No. He said, actually, the law was always leading you to this, the fulfillment of it, which is Jesus. God hasn't changed the plane. He's gone the same way. Uh, DeFazio, who spoke at our retreat, Michael DeFazio, he uses this illustration. The law is kind of like a car that you get in to drive all the way across the country. And then you get out of the car and stop using it, not because the car has broken down, not because it's a bad car, but because you've made it to the ocean, and you can't go any further in that car now that you're at the ocean. It served its purpose. It got you to the ocean. That's what he's saying. The law's whole point was to get God's people to Jesus, was to point them and direct them to Jesus. But the problem is that the Jewish people had turned it from a pointer into the point. They had turned it from something that was supposed to direct them to Jesus, the place where they would find grace, the place where they would find a right status with God, and instead they tried to use that law to make their own right status with God. To make themselves deserve it. To make themselves and to keep other people from being a part of it. It's just us. Those of us who are faithful to the law. And Paul says that is where they messed up. That's why they don't get it. So here's how I would summarize this. Paul says this. So why is physical Israel failing to attain God's righteousness while so many Gentiles are attaining it? The answer is because Israel has pursued it through their works, not through faith in the promised Messiah. So with that, we'll take a little bit of a break and then we're going to start, now that we've looked at Israel in the past, now Paul's going to start talking about Israel in the present. We'll do that in just a few minutes. So uh, stretch your legs, head to the restroom wherever you need to do. Okay, so what we've been talking about, what Paul has been getting at, is this truth. Uh, Israel in the past, he's describing how things worked and saying this, just to sum up again. That God's plan for His people has always come through His promise, not through ethnicity. And His plan has always come through grace and mercy and not through works. That's how it worked in the past and that's how it works today. Um, Jesus has always been the point. He's always been the end of the law. So now Paul's going to start talking about the present, but first he kind of wants to line out what he means when he says that the Gentiles have attained this righteousness by faith. So, go ahead and jump down to chapter 10, verse 9. Says this, um, sorry, I was looking at the wrong thing. Uh, 10, 9 says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. So he says this in verse 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead. Scott mentioned this a while ago, um, that that phrase right there, Jesus is Lord, is not an arbitrary thing that Paul's just kind of pulling out of thin air. Hey, this would be a cool thing for people to say. Uh, He's he's using, he's co-opting actually, a, a famous Roman slogan at the time, Caesar is Lord. It was a confession of allegiance. Caesar's in control. Caesar is my king. He's the one who rules over this. He's the one that I give my allegiance to. And Paul is saying that if you will take that and recognize your true king, Jesus is Lord. And if you believe in your heart that God physically raised him from the dead, you will be saved if those two things come together. And that is what faith looks like. Um, Believing that he rose from the grave, believing him, declaring him to be your king. And he says this um, in verse, uh, where is it, Uh, 12. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Greek is just another word for Gentile. Now, he used almost that exact same phrase all the way back in 322. I don't know if you remember this. For there is no distinction. But what he follows it up with 322 is some pretty bad news. There is no distinction for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God whether you're Jew or Gentile, whether you consider yourself good or bad, whether you grew up in a Christian home or not, every one of you has sinned, and every one of you because of that has been cut off from God and His glory. Here, though, he uses this same phrase for some really, really good news. For there is no distinction, he says, I just lost it, um, between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him for everyone. Who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So in 322, it is highlighting universal sin, but in this one, it highlights the fact that salvation is open to everyone, but that everyone is clarified. It's not just anyone and everyone is saved, it is everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. So it's not everyone who has lived a good life. It's not everyone who, who was truly committed to their faith, regardless of what that faith was. If you're a Jewish person, as long as you were really, really true to your Jewish faith, if you're a Muslim, as long as you really, really tried to be a good Muslim and you really believed it, if you're a Buddhist and you were really, really true to that Buddhist way of life, then you're in. No. Paul says that is a very specific set of people that are in, and it's not people who are good, and it's not people who are committed, it's people who have called on the name of Jesus and Jesus alone. It's the only way that you become part of spiritual Israel. It's the only part that you become the true people of God. Um, And then he says in uh, verse 14 through 16, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? That is, if you don't believe in Jesus, you can't call on it. And he says, "And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? So you cannot believe if no one tells if, if you haven't heard, and how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news? But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, "Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us." Um, we're actually going to spend a fair amount of time next week talking about chapter 10 and and a little bit of these verses here, this is is a big verse Um, only way to be a part of God's family only way to be in is through calling on Jesus, but you can't call on him if you don't believe in him and you can't believe in him if you've never heard of him and you cannot hear of him unless someone tells you and so those things need to be happening, someone's got to be sent, someone's got to go someone's got to tell them Uh, just this week heard from a friend uh, who is considering moving to the other side of the world to, to go and live amongst and work amongst an unreached people group. And his thinking is, man, I love it here. I love where I'm at. I love being with the people I'm with. I love working with the people and I love all those things. But what he said is this, I have been given this amazing grace. I have been given the gospel that I got to hear and I just feel this compulsion that I've got to go over there and at least give them a chance to say no. Uh, If if they're going to not have Jesus, I don't want it to be because they never heard. I want it to be because they had the chance and they said no. And that idea has kind of struck me, um, that my friends and my neighbors, uh, that if they're they're not going to accept Jesus, I want it to be because they at least had the chance to reject Him, and not because I, I never said anything. So here's how I would sum up chapter 10, verses 5 through 21. He says, salvation is offered to everyone, Jew or Gentile, in the same way, by believing in Jesus and confessing Him as Lord, by hearing the gospel and responding to it in faith. And even though Israel has heard it, or at least most of them, the problem is this, they have not responded in faith. So now Paul has looked at how God has worked throughout the past, and he's been talking about how all of this has culminated in Jesus in the present. But what now? What's going to happen to Israel now? Go and jump down to chapter 11, verses 1 through 7. He says, I ask then, has God rejected His people? So, if, if they're not listening, if they're not responding, does that mean God's done with them? Does that mean He doesn't want anything else more to do with them? And He says this, by no means, for I myself am an Israelite, So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. So the question, if Israel is not responding to the gospel, is there any hope for them? Is God done with them? And Paul says, no, he's not done with them. He hasn't written them off. He says, look at me, I'm proof. I'm an Israelite. I'm physically a member of Israel. I'm ethnically a member of Israel. And I was some of the most passionate against Christianity, against Christ, but He saved me. So I'm living proof that God's not done with them, that He hasn't written them all off. Um, And then he uses this story from 1 Kings when Elijah is this prophet and almost all of the people of Israel have turned away from God and they've started worshiping Baal. And it's gotten so bad, Elijah's on the run, the wicked queen Jezebel is trying to put him to death because he's speaking out against the false god of Baal. And he's on this side of the mountain and he just cries out to God and he says, kill me now, God. This isn't worth it. I've worked hard. I've tried to tell people. I've tried to do the right thing and no one's listening. I'm the only one. I'm the only one who wants to follow you. And what God says in that story to him is exactly what you see there. He says, no, no, no. not the only one. Stop being a drama king or drama queen, Elijah. (laughs) Right? He says, listen, the truth is, even though it's a small minority, even though you may not know it, I have held back 7,000 people who have not bowed down to Baal. They still worship me. They still follow me. And Paul says, just like it was back then, it is today. Yes, the majority have turned on him. Yes, the majority have have rejected Jesus, but there is still this small piece, this small remnant of ethnic Israel that is actually a part that is following him, that has accepted Jesus for who he is. Um, So he calls this, he used this phrase, a remnant. And then in the next few verses, um, if you go in through verse 10, he uses these Old Testament scriptures to back this statement up over and over again. Uh, Paul goes back to the Old Old Testament Scriptures because he wants to show that God is consistent then with now. Here's my summary of verses 1-10. through So I ask then, has God excluded the Jewish people from salvation? Of course not. I'm Jewish, Paul says, and He saved me. Just as in the days of Elijah, God has kept a remnant of those who are faithful to Him, even while the rest are hardened to the truth. And then he'll go in in verses 11 through 16, and he'll line out that this doesn't mean that there is no hope for Israel, those who have been hardened to the truth. It doesn't mean there's no hope for them. God is actually using, and this is kind of a crazy little chain of events that he describes here. He says, God is using the Israelites' rejection of the gospel to bring salvation to the Gentiles. And the goal in doing this is that it would bring salvation jealousy to the Israelites, which would then cause some of them to turn and be saved as well. So he says, when the Jewish people rejected the gospel, that actually God used that to bring salvation to the to the Gentiles. How? How did that happen? Well at least three ways that I can think of. The first is because the Jewish people rejected Jesus, that's what got him crucified. Again, that was God's plan. God was working all of that in. It was through their rejection of it that you and I had our sins paid for. Then second, they uh, persecuted the church, and we see this in Acts 8, that after Stephen is killed and this great persecution breaks out against the church, up until that point, the gospel had mostly just stayed in Jerusalem and it had only gone to the Jewish people. But when this persecution breaks out, the church scatters all the way out, and it's really interesting, the word in the book of Acts that is used there Um, is the same word that's used for a farmer that is scattering seed. It says that the church scatters that like seed out over a field and a harvest starts to take place all throughout the world, not just in Jerusalem, not just amongst the Jews, but uh, among the Gentiles. And then the third thing is, Paul will say in the book of Acts, everywhere where Paul goes to share the gospel, he goes first to the Jewish synagogue. He always wants to tell God's people. He feels like they've got a right through, because God has used them to bring the Messiah, they've got a right to hear it first, but almost every time they reject him. And so Paul says to them, fine, if you don't deem yourself worthy of this, I'll take my message to the Gentiles. And so God has been using even their hardness of heart to spread his gospel to the Gentiles. And then Paul says, and the hope is this, that as that begins to happen, the Jews will get jealous and they'll went one in on some of these blessings. So how does that work? I don't know exactly. Except for I think that the idea is that, that as the people of Israel, physical Israel, as they see the kind of things worked out in our lives, the kind of things that were described in Romans 5 through 8, the Holy Spirit-guided life, the kind of life that is changed from the inside out, the hope and the joy and the perseverance and the assurance and this love and this connection with the Father, that that would stir up something in them, Paul is hoping, that will make them want that too that they'll go after those things. So God uses the Jews to reach the Gentiles and then hopefully the Gentiles to reach the Jews, he says. Um, moving on in the next few verses there of Romans uh, eleven seventeen 17 through 24, Paul then tells the Gentiles this, that they should not be arrogant or prideful toward physical Israel because God has used the Jewish people to bring salvation to them. He used them to bring Jesus into the world. And then he uses this imagery of a tree, God's family tree, if you will. And he said, God made this family tree, his people that belongs to him. And what has happened is because many of the people of physical Israel have rejected Jesus, those branches have been broken off of the tree and they're no longer on the family line. But then he says, God has taken you Gentiles who didn't even know anything about God, who didn't even know anything about Jesus, and he has kindly and in mercy grafted you into his family drafted you into the family tree, even though you didn't belong. He put you in there and let you be a part of the true Israel, be a part of it. He says, so don't be prideful because it's not because you're awesome. It's not because um, you were so cute that God decided to show up and save you. right? It's not because you've done a lot of good things. No, no, no. It's just mercy and grace that you get to be in on this thing. So don't be prideful about your position. It's because of your faith and it's because of Israel's unbelief. But, he says, the same thing could happen. They could they could finally begin to believe and you think God, he says, you don't think God would quickly graft them right back in? He's ready to bring them right back into this thing so that as many people out of physical Israel could be a part of spiritual Israel as possible. That's what he wants. He'll, He'll go down towards the end in 11, 25 through 32 and says this, that for now, at this time, God has hardened many of the people in physical Israel so that more Gentiles may receive mercy. And he does that so that eventually more Jews may receive mercy. And in this way, God will accomplish his purpose in saving all of the true Israel, all of the spiritual Israel, which is both Jews and Gentiles. A little side note, there's this verse in here that has caused a whole lot of debate. Um, 11.26 And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Uh, there's been a a whole lot of question around that verse and what that means. Some people think that that means that all of Israel throughout all time is going to be saved. Um, That they're just in because they're people of God. The only problem with that belief is every other word in the book of Romans. All right? Um, Paul has made it clear that it's not by following your Israelite faith. It's not by following the law. It has always and only ever been about faith in God and faith in his promised Messiah Jesus that anyone is ever saved. And so that can't be what it's talking about. Some people think that Paul is talking about towards the end time, like at the end of time, that there will be this mass conversion of the people of Israel, that they will all come to faith, and that like the new kingdom will kind of be set up in Jerusalem and all of those things. And so people are looking forward to that day when. Israel will all come to faith in him. Um, That would be awesome. Uh, I I don't think that that's what he's talking about here. Because there's nowhere else in scripture that talks about some kind of end time mass conversion in Israel. And for him to say that all Israel would be saved, I think would mean more than just the people in the last couple years of history. I think he would mean literally all Israel. Everyone, all time. And and like we said, that's not really an option. I think what he's saying is that God has been using this method of bringing mercy to people through grace and hardening some people, Pharaoh or ethnic Israel, to bring more mercy to the Gentiles, to then bring more mercy back to the Israelites. He's been doing all of this and working all this together that through faith in Jesus, all true Israel, all real Israel, all those people who have faith in Jesus... Will be saved. Um, And this leads into Paul's final statement, which is often referred to as the doxology. Um, A doxology is just a statement of praise or worship, a liturgical statement of praise. And and here's how it goes. When Paul steps back and looks at the way that God has woven all of history together to serve his purposes, to bring salvation to the world through Jesus, he says, how else can I respond but to say this, verse 33, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. So, what Paul's getting at is this that, that what God did throughout history. The way he orchestrated everything and the way he brought it um, all to the point of Jesus. And he used this man that nobody saw it coming because this guy ends up laying down his life instead of reigning in military victory. Instead of conquering all of his enemies, he let his enemies conquer him and that's how he conquered all his enemies. He so said, no one would have seen that coming. Nobody could, could guess that. How unsearchable is God's plan? How incredible is it? But if you look back, he says, you can see the pattern forming. You just wouldn't have guessed it until God revealed it in Jesus. And how incredible is a God who has done that and, and who can do these things that I could never even fathom. Paul says, all I can do when I think through and look back at it is just worship God for all He is and all He's done for us in Jesus. So, what I want to do is I want to read this summary all together just so you can catch kind of the the, the big thing. So, right now, we're going to pedal fast, all right, uh, through Romans 9 through 11. Here's how this all goes in one fell swoop. Paul says, I am deeply sorrowful that Israel, in spite of all its blessings, stands cut off from Christ and therefore God. But God's plan did not fail. For there are actually two Israels, and inclusion in the true Israel has never been strictly a matter of physical descent, nor is it a matter of good works. It's not unjust for God to work like this. He has the right to show mercy or to harden whoever He wants in order to bring about His purposes. And that's what He's been doing with physical Israel. He's using them as His instrument to bring mercy to spiritual Israel, which includes Gentiles and a remnant of, but not all of, the Jews. So then why is physical Israel failing to attain God's righteousness while so many Gentiles are attaining it? Because Israel has pursued it through their works and through faith in the promised Messiah. Salvation is offered to everyone, Jew or Gentile, in the exact same way, believing in Jesus and confessing Him as Lord, hearing the gospel and responding to it in faith. And though Israel has heard it, they have not responded in faith. So I ask then, has God excluded the Jewish people from salvation? Of course not. I'm Jewish and He saved me, just as in the days of Elijah, God has kept a remnant of those who are faithful to Him, even while the rest are hardened to the truth. But this hardening of ethnic Israel is actually used by God to bring salvation to the Gentiles and in turn bring jealousy to my fellow Jews so that some of them might be saved as well. So you Gentiles should not be arrogant toward Israel because God used them to bring salvation to you. And it's not because of you, but because of your faith that God has grafted you into His people. He could just as easily graft Jewish people back in by faith. For now, though, God has hardened many people in physical Israel so that more Gentiles may receive mercy, so that eventually more Jews may receive mercy. And in this way, God will accomplish His purposes in saving all of the true Israel. Praise God for His unmatchable, unsearchable wisdom and plan in accomplishing His purposes for His glory. That's a lot. There's a whole lot to it. And, and there's stuff, if you've never read this before, then you're going, cool, I don't know, I don't even, you may be going, I don't even get what the controversy is. If you've read this before, you know what some of the controversy is, and you may be going, I, I still don't get some stuff, Drew. There's still some stuff that sounds a little crazy. I get it. Come talk to me. We weren't able to get into all of it, but I'm happy to talk through more of this stuff um, as we get into it. And next week, we're going to get to go back through and unpack some of the amazing, beautiful truths in here and what that means for us today. Um, But for tonight, we're done. All right.